All right, good to see everybody again this morning. It's good to see our balcony filling up a little bit more. It's getting a little tight up there, isn't it? It's good. We took those lights down. You can see now. It's good without people looking around. Usually when I look up there, people are looking one side or the other. Anyway, welcome to those of you joining us online. You know, as I've said before, whenever you prepare a sermon, you preach it to yourself. And this one today is particularly impactful to me, and it's been my prayer all week that will be likewise impactful for you. So as we continue to look at what Paul meant when he taught us that we're to imitate God by walking in love, we've realized that this is our, probably our highest calling. This is a challenge for us. And he started out by showing us how we can't be riding dirty. We can't be professing a faith and having a sneaky sin in our lives because there's consequences. And then he went into detail on what those two consequences were. First, there's no inheritance in the kingdom. And then second, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So those are pretty sobering consequences for us to grasp. And then over the past two weeks, Paul has given us two examples of what walking in love does not look like. In the first of these three do-nots, Paul taught, do not partner with those sons of disobedience, meaning don't participate in the things that they're doing. Their darkness, your light, since you've been born again into a new life in Christ. So you're in a relationship with the King of Heaven, and so you can't be participating in that stuff anymore. And then last week, in the second of the do-nots, Paul taught, do not be foolish. Again, because you've been born again. You can't operate like those sons of disobedience anymore. Instead, you're to walk in the wisdom of Christ, and that's because you now have access to Christ's wisdom because you're in a relationship with him. And that, un- that relationship, it unfolds in the middle voice, where, where God is impacting us, and we are responding to his impact on us by actively engaging in all that he is doing in our lives. And that's the focus that we have going into this one today, because we see every opportunity, everything in front of us is an opportunity to engage in our mission, which is to be on mission for Christ. So after all, if we think about it, we're all just sojourners. We're all just traveling down that well-lit path, heading toward our heavenly home. And then today, in the third of these final do-nots, Paul teaches, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So Paul continues to differentiate life on these two paths by now focusing on what it is that fills us. And it's a powerful illustration because it provides yet another stark contrast to what happens before and after we're born again. That wide dark path up there, as we all know, represents unbelievers, those who have not been born again into a new life in Christ. So when things get hard, they go into the valleys of life, or whenever they want to celebrate something on the mountain, mountaintops, they turn to alcohol. It was that way back in Paul's day, no change in our day and age. You get a promotion, you go celebrate over a drink. You lose your job, you go drown your sorrows in some booze. So it's a tremendous example. It's timeless, actually, if you think about it, because it shows us what was going on back in Paul's day, and it instructs us about what's going on in our day and age. And to be clear, Paul is not referring to a drink with dinner. He's talking about many drinks, because he uses this word drunk, which means to be intoxicated or soaked. So this is a filling up of alcohol, of spirits, to loosen up a bit, to get a buzz, to celebrate, or maybe just forget something. But of course, it's only temporary 
as all seemingly happy things in this world are, because to maintain that, you have to keep filling up to the point where you actually lose control over your executive functions. And so life literally becomes out of balance for you. You get wobbly legs, slurred speech, impaired thinking, leading to any number of bad judgments and other unfortunate outcomes. Or as Paul describes it, debauchery, which means riotous or like the prodigal son or destructive. And of course that makes sense because drunken debauchery represents those on the path to eternal destruction. Debauchery is what devastates families. It ruins marriages. It so often leads to the abuse of children. It kills careers. It can even tragically lead to the loss of life for those who get behind the wheel of a car. Now, in the realm of logic, it actually makes no sense. It's foolishness like we learned last week. Because if you think about it, what is the best possible outcome that can come from getting drunk? You won't like it. Like normally we want to compare it to things that we'll really like. But the best possible outcome of drunkenness is that you won't like it. Because if you do like it, it's going to wreck your life. And that's even lower than not liking it. So think about that. Why would we ever engage in something where the, worst, or the best possible outcome is that we won't like it? But that's the foolishness of the world. It's what they turn to in the highs and lows of life. Now, lucky for you, this is not a sermon about drunkenness. Paul's just using this to provide the contrast for us. So rather than be filled with wine like you used to when you were back on that wide, dark path, be filled with the Holy Spirit instead. And that's Paul's focus, that we're filled with the Holy Spirit. He wants us to know in no uncertain terms that the Christian life is to be lived out in terms of the power of the Holy Spirit. So that means we've got to briefly review this doctrine of the Trinity yet again. Of course, we've seen this before because Paul has made it a point to teach us about the Holy Spirit throughout this letter, and for good reason. Far too many professing Christians live without understanding what they have access to in the indwelling Holy Spirit. So we cannot leave here today without having a firm grasp on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. First, the Holy Spirit is not a power, not a force, not some mystical, magical energy that you can tap into. He is not an it. He is a person, and he is the third person of the Trinity. He is God. He is the person of God, who sanctifies the people of God, meaning he convicts, he counsels, and he comforts God's beloved children to become holy as God is holy. So now let's see where this phrase, being filled with the Holy Spirit, fits within the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. First, being filled with the Spirit is not to be confused with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Jesus teaches us in John chapter 3 that we must be baptized by the Holy Spirit in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. That happens when we place our faith in Jesus and we're born again into a new life in Christ. That's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's what sets God's beloved children apart. It's not something we do. It's something that happens to us whenever God grants us faith in Jesus. It's a gift from God by his grace, as Paul taught us back in chapter 2. Now, when the Holy Spirit then takes up residence or indwells us, 
basically what we call that is the seal of the Holy Spirit. We see that out, all throughout Scripture. So His presence in us is the guarantee that the Holy Spirit will walk us hand in hand down that well-lighted path, that He will always be about the business of pointing us to Jesus, sanctifying us, making us more holy as He walks us all the way through that gate up there. And that's because we couldn't possibly make it on our own. We require God's strength through His indwelling Holy Spirit. Again, this is not something that we do. The seal of the Holy Spirit is something that is given to us by God. And it is not to be confused with being filled with the Spirit. These are different things. We also sometimes find in the Old Testament and the New Testament that there's an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. It too is not the same thing as being filled with the Spirit. An outpouring of the Holy Spirit occurs when God empowers someone or a group of people for a very specific purpose. For example, Scripture tells us about this man named Bazalel, who was the chief architect of the Ark of the Covenant. And there was an outpouring of the Holy Spirit on him where God granted him a unique set of skills, knowledge, and behaviors for a very specific task, and that was to build the Ark of the Covenant where God was going to reside. There was also an outpouring on Moses and other prophets whenever they conveyed God's word. Peter witnessed an outpouring of the Holy Spirit on a group of Gentiles in Acts chapter 10. And of course, all the disciples experienced it at Pentecost when these tongues of fire came down on them and they broke out in different languages. It's what's often meant when people use the terms revival or awakening. Those are outpourings. There are well-documented cases of them in the United States, particularly in the 1800s, 1830, 1857, and 1882. An outpouring of the Holy Spirit is also in the category of things that we do not control. We cannot schedule a revival, even though many churches try. It's something only God can do, and He does it in His perfect timing. So we do not control those first three items up there. There are, however, a few items with regard to the Holy Spirit that we do control. Paul taught us about one of them just a few weeks ago, grieving the Holy Spirit. Now this happens when we are born again. We have the Holy Spirit in us, but we live in unrepentant, habitual sin. Meaning we choose to live in sin despite knowing that it's wrong. And it grieves the Holy Spirit of God. He never leaves us because he's a seal, but there's a distance of sorts in the relationship we have with the Holy Spirit. We don't experience his fruit in our lives. We don't operate by his power, so we don't progress in holiness. Now, this is something that we do control because it is our choice to sin, and it is also our choice to repent. We also find mention in Scripture of quenching the Holy Spirit, particularly in Paul's letter to the church in Thessalonica. Now, this is a close cousin to grieving the Holy Spirit because it happens whenever we choose to ignore Him, and it's usually out of ignorance or some form of spiritual pride. For example, when we don't acknowledge His presence in our lives, or whenever we speak of Him as an it, or whenever we invite Him into places. Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. It shows that we don't actually know about the Holy Spirit. We don't know Him because we don't know the fact that He is God and He is omnipresent, so He's everywhere. 
Who do we think we are that we could welcome him somewhere? It's pride, spiritual pride. Or when we ignore his promptings to pray or reject his counsel in Scripture, we quench him. So we don't experience the fullness of his power in and through us. Again, this is something that we do control. And this is now where this phrase Paul uses today fits in, be filled with the Spirit. And that's when we live life by the power of the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, where we choose to walk with him in obedience. That's loving God is when we obey him. We walk in obedience. Now notice, this is a command or a directive from Paul. So this is clearly something that we do control because Paul writes, be filled with the Spirit. So this is something that we are directed to go and do. Now the verb be filled is in the present continuous tense, so it's an ongoing filling. In that sense, it's also different from an outpouring because it's something that can go on in perpetuity. And an outpouring typically comes in for a specific reason and then it goes away. Now Stephen was described as being filled with the Holy Spirit, someone who consistently walked with the Lord. It's what qualified him to be one of the first deacons back in the day. Being filled with the Holy Spirit means we essentially yield our desires to His. In other words, we are obedient. We humbly pursue holiness. So not only do we need the Holy Spirit to pursue holiness, but we are filled with Him as we progress in it. So Paul should have our attention by now, I hope. Because this is pretty exciting stuff, being filled with the Holy Spirit of God, and we even have a say in it. So I hope he's got our attention, because he's going to now give us three examples of what we can do to be filled with the Holy Spirit of God. Paul writes, be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So there actually seems to be quite a few things that we can be do, could be doing to be filled with the Spirit. So instead of partnering with those sons of disobedience, instead of being foolish or being drunk with wine, instead of grieving and quenching the Holy Spirit of God with our sin and our rebellion, we're to be filled with the Holy Spirit, praising giving thanks and submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So once again, this is a choice we have. It's a choice to praise, a choice to give thanks, and a choice to submit. And that's actually what we've been talking about whenever we use this phrase, opportunity cost. We have so much time in our lives and we can do one thing or another in every moment that we have. And what Paul is telling us here is that we need to choose obedience. We need to choose love. That's the whole middle voice. The Holy Spirit is in us. He is acting on us. And we are to respond to him, acting on us, for God's glory alone. When our eyes are fixed on God's glory alone, we start to operate in this space that Paul's talking about. So first, we are to praise, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Now, praise is not only relegated to music. 
because we're to praise God in all aspects of our lives. But Paul is specifically drawing our attention to music here because psalms were typically sung back in the day, and of course hymns we sing, and spiritual songs. In fact, our first song today was a hymn. Our second song today was a psalm, Psalm 36, and we'll sing some spiritual songs to conclude. There's just something about music that helps us convey praise to God, especially when we do it together. And Paul teaches us that it fills us with the Spirit when we do that, because it pleases God when we gather together and praise him. Now recall what Jehoshaphat did. He was the king of Judah when they were surrounded on all sides by their enemies. Judah didn't even need to fight, because what did he do? He pulled a portion of the nation aside, even though they were facing impending doom, and he said, just praise God. So they just started praising God, and as they were praising God, God confused the enemy that had surrounded them. They started taking each other out, and whenever Judah crested the hill, all they could see was just carnage everywhere, and it took Judah three days to pick up all the plunder. What do we learn from that? Well, We are supposed to be praising God on the mountains and in the valleys. It's so important that we see that so that we're filled with the Holy Spirit to carry out his work regardless of the situation that we find ourselves. Notice, too, how Paul directs us to address one another as we praise. So we're to praise together. It's one of the things that fills my heart every week here at Four Mile. It's actually one of the most encouraging aspects of this church in my own mind. I don't know how many of you all visit other churches, but I've been to many of them in my day, and very few churches sing. All you can hear, maybe the band up here, or maybe one or two people singing like that, but you don't see people singing. But here at Four Mile Church, people sing. In fact, when I've had visitors come, family members or friends or whatever, and they come for a service on Sunday, the first thing they always say is, man, that church sings. It's a glorious thing, isn't it? It's exciting when it happens as the person behind us belts out praise to God, and it compels us to praise Him too. It fills us with the Holy Spirit as we sing and make melody to the Lord with our heart. To the Lord with our heart. So the song choice, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if we're singing a psalm, a hymn, or a contemporary spiritual song. Paul even says so himself. It doesn't even matter how good we sound or how well the band plays it or even if you like the song because how you feel during the song doesn't matter. All that matters is that your praise is to the Lord. He is the object of our praise. Is that where we are as we're praising him? Are we thinking about lunch afterwards or whatever else is going on in our lives or are we locked in praising our Lord and Savior? He is the object. Our eyes must be fixed squarely on him and his glory alone as we praise. Because when we do that, we're filled with the Spirit. Praising God fills us, soaks us, makes us drunk, intoxicated, empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. Because we can't truly praise him unless the Holy Spirit empowers us. And then as we praise him, he fills us. That's why we're missing out if we stand there with our hands in our pocket, looking down at our shoes, checking our watch. When is this thing finally going to be over? Because we miss out in being filled with the Holy Spirit. We must praise Him in spirit and in truth. 
In fact, we should be so excited to gather for praise each Sunday that all day Monday, you're like checking our website and the app to see if Tyler finally posted the new songs for the next week because you can't wait to be getting after them. Did you know that? Like if you just go to our website or go to the app, you can click on the Spotify list link there and it will take you right to the songs we're going to sing the next Sunday. And that is so that you can be out there working on it all week long, right? Have it just loaded up in your car every time you turn your car on. Work on those songs so that when you get here, these are personal expressions that you've been singing to the Lord all week long and you can just let it rip. Now think about this because that's actually what we're going to be doing in heaven, praising God for all eternity. And it's about as good as it gets. Next, we're filled by giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now this one's tough. It's hard sometimes to give thanks. As we learned a few weeks back, gratitude, however, is our response to all that God has done for us. It's humble gratitude, even when it hurts. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God, he redeemed us by sending his son to save us, to die on the cross, choosing to bear God's wrath for our sins in our place so we didn't have to. And because of that, because of our Lord Jesus Christ, we thank God the Father for his amazing divine grace. So we live our lives in remembrance of all that God has done for us and in remembrance how, of how good he has been for us. That's why the entirety of a born-again life is lived out of a response to God's unfathomable love for us. We aren't obedient to get into heaven. We're already in. And so we're filled with gratitude. And that's why we can't help ourselves but to respond with a life of humble obedience, living for God's glory out of gratitude, always and for everything. That means gratitude for the mountains and the valleys all the same. It's just like praise. We praise in the mountains, we praise in the valleys. We're grateful in the mountains, we're grateful in the valleys. Paul wants me to thank God even though my spouse just left me for another person. Yep. Now, this is not a false sense of gratitude because my spouse just walked out on me because that would be completely disingenuous. But rather, it's a sense of gratitude that even though the things of this world will always disappoint us, God will not. He is not happy with your spouse leaving you either. It's a result of sin, and it's nasty, foul, repulsive stuff. He hates it too, but he loves you. You're one of his beloved children, and that's why we thank him in the valleys too. It truly doesn't matter what the world throws our way. We have heaven to look forward to, and so we praise and we give thanks, remembering we're just sojourning through this world, pilgrims headed to our eternal home. And so we respond in every aspect of our lives out of a sense of gratitude, humble gratitude, for all that God has done for us in the past, all that he's doing for us right now, and all that he will do for us into the future. In other words, we thank God always and for everything. And when we do, we please him, and he fills us with his spirit. And third, we're filled with the spirit when we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, this word submit 
is loaded. It can carry some challenging connotations with it. So we want to make really sure that we're clear about the original intended meaning of this word. Submitting means to yield or to subordinate oneself to another. Maybe think about it like whenever you're in the grocery store and you step up to the, to the line as someone else does, and you yield to that person, regardless of how much junk they have in their cart. Or maybe think about it like the all-volunteer military force that we have now. Now, some of you were part of the draft in Vietnam, and so that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the all-volunteer force where you have a choice to serve. And so you subordinate or you yield your desire to wear long hair or to wear whatever clothes you want, and you subordinate yourself to what the military tells you you need to do with a short haircut and wear a specific kind of uniform. And you do it because you're serving a higher cause. And we subject ourselves to something like that there's an element of being controlled by it. So you're actually controlled by the military. You take your orders from them. But speaking out of personal experience, it's not onerous or overbearing control because you chose it. You volunteered to submit yourself in this way. Now, when you submit from that perspective, you no longer see it as a sacrifice. You see it as an honor. You see it as a privilege. Doesn't mean it's always easy but it's something you willingly yield to because of the higher cause. And that's the way this word submit is used here by Paul. So it's laced with a spirit of humility, putting other needs before our own and serving them. It's an expression of love. And when we submit or yield to others, Paul teaches we're filled with the Holy Spirit because it is the very spirit that Christ demonstrated when he cared for the sick, the abandoned, or the lost. It's perhaps best exemplified when Jesus washed the disciples' feet. So it's about getting low, like Jesus did. It's about humbling yourself. It's how we submit out of reverence for Christ, imitating him, as Paul is ultimately teaching us here. And then next, Paul will go on to show us how we submit to one another by giving three concrete examples. First, in marriage, between husbands and wives. Second, in families, between parents and their children. And then third, in the workplace, between employers and employees. So think about that for a minute. That means that we can be filled with the Spirit by how we conduct ourselves in our marriages, in our families and at work. That's pretty big news. And we're going to cover these over the next couple of months. But I want to be really clear about something. This isn't some magical, mystical thing. You don't say to yourself, well, I'm having a bad day. Let me just start singing a praise song. Or let me just start thanking God. No, this is about fixing our eyes on Jesus. Keeping those words above me clear in your head. You're doing this for God's glory alone. You're praising him. For his glory. You're thanking him for his glory. You're submitting for his glory. And when you do that, he fills you with your spirit because it pleases him. It's what we were created to do, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So if you think about this, this is a pretty profound teaching today. The Holy Spirit enables us to praise, to give thanks, and to submit to one another and when we do, out of obedience, 
we're filled with him so that we're empowered to carry out his will. And it's the perfect example of this middle voice that we keep talking about, where we actively engage in what God is doing in and through us. It's how we walk in love for God's glory alone. And I'm telling you, you're not going to want to miss these next couple of months. This is pretty exciting stuff. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the amazing gift of your word today. May it be for us a call to do all that you teach us to be filled with your Holy Spirit. It is our desire, out of reverence for Christ, to praise you, to give you thanks always and for everything, and to submit to one another as Jesus did. Fill us, we pray, so that we might carry out your will. For Jesus' sake, amen.